120 years ago, Lizzie McGee created a new board game. You probably haven't heard of this board game that Lizzie created. It was called the Landlord's Game. It was designed to teach players about the perils of land grabbing and wealthy landowners who would accumulate all the, all the land and then they'd rent it out to others. Everyone shared money that they used to develop properties. The goal ultimately in the game was to put everyone else bankrupt, to drive them into financial ruin. But the landlord game, landlord's game did not really take off in Lizzie's day. It had, it, she, she developed it somewhere around Delaware, and, and um, there, there, it kind of became a niche game among intellectuals and academics and college students, but it didn't really go anywhere. Until about two decades later. Two decades later, the Great Depression hit, and a man named Charles Darrow started to develop a new version of the landlord's game that he began to sell as a way to make money during the Great Depression. He operated from the same principle of the landlord's game, but he renamed some of the properties. He kind of adapted the game and smoothed out some of the rough edges. And you might have heard of some of these properties, Atlantic Avenue, Marvin Gardens, Park Place, Boardwalk. Oh, and he renamed the, name, the game from the landlord's game to Monopoly. Now, this is in no way a commentary related to your view or your convictions regarding uh, economics, but isn't it fascinating that a game that was originally created as a warning against unchecked capitalism, which is what the landlord's game was, one person gets rich while they try to do what to all of their opponents? Bankrupt them. A game that was created as a warning against such an ambition has now become a paragon of the virtues of capitalism. Get rich however you can as much as you can, and that is where you will find success. You didn't realize this morning that you would learn that you've viewed Monopoly the wrong way your whole life. Now you're going to have that thought in your mind anytime you open Monopoly or anytime you try to play Monopoly. I know I will. I love Monopoly. It's one of my favorite games, and I take great delight in bankrupting others, but Here's what I'm getting at. On a far greater scale than how you view a board game, you know, that, that, that total perspective alteration of how you view it. On a far greater scale than that, Jesus is going to speak to our lives, and particularly how we understand, like, the chaos of the world around us, the, 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 the bad news that we hear, the things that we look at and say, what is happening in this world? He's going to alter our perspective on that from, from a perspective that kind of shakes our head and even feels dismay or even prays for those who we see going through hard times, which we should do, don't get me wrong. But he's going to alter our perspective from, from looking at it and just being paused to saying, there's a way that I want you to respond to this. There's a way in which this serves for the sake of stirring your heart to hope in me. And see what he's going to show us in Luke 12, 54 to 13, 21. The big idea that I want to hold before you is to, we ought to look to the chaos of the world, look at the chaos of the world, and urgently run to Jesus. Look at the chaos of the world and urgently run to Jesus. I invite you to follow along as I read from verse 54, chapter 12. 
through verse 21 of chapter 13. Jesus is speaking to crowds that have gathered to hear him, and he says, in verse 54, he also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a shower is coming, and so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be a scorching heat, and it happens. You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and put on, it, put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Now, as he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and behold, there was a woman who had had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. And when Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites. Does not each one of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, who Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame. And all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like, and to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree. And the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again, he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. May God write these truths of his word upon our hearts this morning. Now, at the outset, I, I want to I kind of situate us contextually 
Normally, in, in our practice of going verse by verse, chapter by chapter through books of the Bible, uh, the, the large lion's share of the Bible is written for followers of God, for Christians, that they might hear it, that they might apply it. And there's certainly application that we get from this passage. But make no mistake, much of the audience that Jesus is actually addressing in this passage are non-Christians. And you, you see, he, he has been addressing disciples in larger groups of his followers, and now he's addressing non-Christians who kind of seemingly have one foot in, one foot out. They don't really know what to make of Chris, Christianity. They don't know what to make of this Jesus guy, and they, they, they don't know whether or not he's worth following. And so if that is the boat that you are in this morning, I invite you, I encourage you, I plead with you, I urge you to hear Jesus' words to you. And for the rest of us, may we hear these words and may the Spirit minister them to our hearts and may we be, be, be provoked, prompted towards an urgency towards the cause of making Christ known to those around us. That word urgency is prominent as we think about this passage. So first thing that we must see as we, as we make our way through this passage, we must understand the urgency of the times. This part of Jesus' address to a gathered crowd is interesting because he bounces just rapid fire, bang, 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 bang. He, he bounces between different illustrations as he exhorts this audience towards a general idea, and that is to see the urgency with which they must decide what they're going to do in response to him. So he's going to hold up this, this general idea, understand the urgency of the times, and he's going to give four illustrations that kind of revolve around it that we're going to look at that help us to see the argument he's making about the urgency of the matter. Okay? So the first thing he says is he says in verses 54 to 56 of chapter 12, he says, see the signs. Deciding what you're going to do with me or whether or not you will follow me, he's saying, look at the signs and determine. He references how his listeners, they know how to interpret the weather, what is happening, what will soon happen. We see clouds on the horizon. We see wind blowing from the south. They know how to do this, but how, and, and how, how do they miss Jesus who's standing before him and what his coming means? You know, all across life, we try to understand the signs. Get the email from a boss. We need to talk. Like, hey, is that a good we need to talk? A not so good we need to talk? You get a message from a romantic interest, and man, you parse that thing out, like, like all of the punctuation. I remember, I remember when I would get text messages from Amanda, I was like way interested in her far before she really wanted anything to do with me, and so I would send her a text message, and she would intentionally wait like four or five days before she responded so as to not lead me on at all, but I would like parse through that text. What is she trying to say there? Now, when she says, Stephen, I am not interested, does she mean she's not interested? Like, she's really not? No, I'm just kidding. But you, you get the point where you go through those things. Husbands, many of you understand trying to read the signs of a wife that is disappointed in you. And you try to figure out, what what I do? Is there something I'm missing? Conversation I need to recall here that I'm drawing a blank on. We try to read the signs. Doctors try to read the signs as they treat patients in order to prepare for what the future holds. Financial planners study the markets and economic trends in order to try to protect their clients. 
And yet Jesus looks at us and says, you do not look at the world and prepare for what is to come. You read the signs on everything going on except what to make of your relationship with me. You look at this world that is burning, seemingly running too hot, too fast, and you give no thought as to how you ought to respond in regards to Jesus who has come. So the first thing he told, holds before us is this idea of urgency. First, first pillar of it, see the sign, see the urgency of the matter. The second is to see yourself. This next illustration is a little strange, but you'll see the point. In verses 57 to 59, Jesus references one man who is getting hauled before a judge by another man who is accusing him of something. So you've got the accuser and the accused. And Jesus basically says the accused man, he is dead to rights. Guilty, no doubt about it. Open and shut case. And so he says, why will he not make a deal with his accuser before they get to the judge? Before he's found guilty, before he is sentenced. And Jesus is putting his listeners in this boat. He's saying, before you stand before God in judgment, why will you not make a deal? Now, this illustration only goes so far. Jesus isn't looking to make a deal, but why will you not avert the judgment that is coming and come and follow me? That's what he's saying. Has it ever dawned on you how much we worry about the future? The insurance industry makes billions and billions and billions of dollars every year because we rightly are concerned about the future. Whether it's our health, whether it's our homes, whether it's disability insurance, life insurance, you know. I, I was looking at this this week. You can get almost anything insured. If you have valuable plants at your home that Maybe a little close to the house, and if you have home insurance for if a fire breaks out, but you also need to insure the plants in case the fire gets them as well. You can insure your plants. You can get alien abduction insurance through the UFO Abduction Insurance Company. They promise not to turn you down for any pre-existing conditions. There's a famous cricket player from Australia named Merv Hughes who apparently has such a beautiful mustache that he has it insured for $370,000. We worry about the future. We worry, what could come? I have to insulate myself so that if disaster comes, I am ready. And Jesus says, far too often, those who do not know me, they're aware of me enough that they dismiss me, and they're aware of how crazy this world is, and they're aware of the uncertainty of tomorrow, and yet they have not connected A to B and figured out what must I do in regards to my relationship with Jesus. What did you worry about this week? I worried about some landscaping matters in my yard. We have a nasty turkey problem in our neighborhood. I worried about normal parent worries for their children. I have a really full calendar coming up. That occupied some of my time. I worried, okay, are we going to have enough volunteers for the holidays fair work? There's a plug in there for you, by the way. What worried you? We could open up, open my, I've got about, uh, I, I could open it up here. I am content in knowing if we have another 30, 35 minutes of this service that we could fill it up if we just started passing the mic around and telling all the things that worry us. Not getting, not understanding the subject matter at school, not really fitting in in the classroom. Stresses related to health issues that you're dealing with or that a loved one's dealing with. Financial concerns. You name it. 
Jesus says you worry about all this stuff, but you give no thought to standing before God. That's what he's saying to his audience. You give no thought to standing before your creator, the perfect judge, the sovereign ruler over all of creation, who he has the perfect, just, final right to stand over you and cast judgment upon you. I plead with you, if you are not yet Christian, to give careful, careful, careful thought to Jesus' words here. He is addressing that incredible ability that we have to hear enough of Christianity and say, okay, there's something about it that's appealing. There's something about it that, okay, it makes sense. And yet to dismiss it enough that we, we, we do not do anything with it. And Jesus is saying to you, the clock is ticking. Urgency is of primary importance. Jesus is saying, hear me and determine what you will do with me. He's saying, don't dismiss me and just be casual. But urgently respond. You see, we who are Christians, those of us who have come to Christ by faith, we have been delivered from this judgment of God upon our sin. You see, all of us as human beings, let's start at the basic ground level, all of us as human beings have been created in the image of God. And yet we have rebelled against God, and we have chosen what the Bible calls sin. That's rebellion against God. Saying, I don't want what you would have for me, God. I'm going to go my own path. And yet, in God's mercy, he did not just wipe us out when we rebelled against him, yet he has, he has stuck with us. He has bore with us in our sin. The fact that our hearts are beating, the fact that our minds have thoughts, the fact that, that, that we are sitting here today is a testament to God's kindness. And yet Jesus stands before us and says, I have come that I might redeem you from your sin that you have committed against God. And he does this by saying, I, by, by what we know is the fullness of the story that Jesus has died on the cross for our sins. And that by faith in him, we may have new life. So this is who we are as Christians, as a church. This is what I encourage you. If this is not you, if you, if you this sounds odd to you or this sounds like something, yeah, I haven't, I haven't done this business with God, I would love to speak with you after our service. I'd love to try to answer any questions you have. But I encourage you, don't just push this aside. Set, uh, set it up in your heart where you will do something with this message one way or another. So Jesus says, come to me by faith before you stand before the judge. Why would you not settle with your accuser before you enter that courtroom? So he says, see the signs. He says, see yourself. And third, he says, let me show you how to respond. See how to respond. He elaborates on this point in chapter 13, verses 1 through 5, as two instances are mentioned. First, Jesus is asked about a horrific event where Pilate, this Roman ruler, this Roman authority, he committed some kind of vile evil against Galileans. Where he did what? He killed them, this kind of ethnic cleansing, killing Galileans and mingling their blood with sacrifices they had made to God. This is barbaric evil of Pilate. And sometimes, Jesus knows human nature, because right, whenever we see a terrible event happen, 
a, 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 a horrific natural disaster, we, we, we might look at something and say, yeah, I wonder what those people did to deserve that. We would never say it out loud, but we kind of think it. I remember experiencing that. Where I was down near New Orleans in college whenever Hurricane Katrina hit, and there were some who suspected or even talked about how it was God's judgment upon uh, uh, New Orleans and its, uh, 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 let's say, uh, debauchery and, and uh, licentiousness and, and, and um, the depravity of the city and all that. But the strange thing is, is that actually the part of New Orleans that was most left undamaged in Hurricane Katrina was actually the French Quarter in Bourbon Street because of just the geography of it, the topography. And so Jesus knows how we as humans, can we can look at that and say, yeah, you know, I, I don't delight in it, but they kind of had it coming. And he says, no, actually the answer when you see some kind of natural disaster or some kind of horrific event is not to try to explain it away, but actually to hear this warning of verse 3 in chapter 13. Look at this. No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Look at that. Jesus says repentance is at the heart of the Christian faith. It is a confessing of one's sins before God, a turning from one way of living in service to one's own desires, wishes, plans for their life, turning from that and walking in obedience to God, forsaking the sin, the rebellion against God that we have committed, and turning by faith and saying, Jesus, the life that you would have for me, I now trust you. And I follow you, whatever the cost may be. Whatever your word would have for me, my life is not my own. I belong to you. This is how somebody is transformed, changed, converted, born again. And he's saying this is what you must do before it's too late. And then he, he elaborates further on the point. He shifts from a disaster wrought by the hands of an evil man, Pilate, to a disaster that's the result of life in a fallen world where accidents, where tragedies happen. Verse 4, he references those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. So some news event from Jesus' day, a number of people gathered in the vicinity of a tower that sadly something structurally happened with it, or maybe there was heavy wind gusts that knocked something. Somehow it fell, and 18 people lost their life. He says, do you think they were worse offenders than all the ones who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So this is the response that he calls for as we recognize the urgency of the moment. I want you to see something. Now, you never know what the next doctor's appointment will reveal. You never know when the next terrible tragedy will be on the front page of the news. Jesus is saying, repent before it's too late. Perhaps you've been putting off Jesus' call to follow him. You've just been putting it off in the name of other matters that just seem more urgent or seem more pressing. I urge you to hear Jesus. Now, Christian, there is a word here for you and I as well. We ask, okay, what do we do with the bad news that just seems to never be ending in our world? Allow this unrelenting bad news that plagues our world to drive you to prayer 
for your evangelism, for your sharing the gospel with non-Christians in your life. In fact, Jesus actually gives you a pretty good foothold here for next time you're talking to somebody, a co-worker, a neighbor, and you're, sadly some horrific event that has happened in the world comes up and they say, what, what do you think God has to say about that? There's a way to lovingly present this and say, actually, Jesus has spoken to this kind of disaster. And it's something that I've taken to heart in how I've become a Christian. You can springboard off of that to share the hope of the gospel with them. Now, it's probably at this point that you're thinking, Stephen, I came into this room, I was having a bit of a difficult day, and you've only made it more difficult. This, this sermon is so hopeful, just what I needed. Well, I want to encourage you to hang on, because we're going to see an interesting way in which Jesus gives hope to those in tragedy, suffering, with a beautiful grace that only He offers. So hang on with me, but before we get there, we've we got to see the last pillar of this urgency that Jesus call, calls His listeners to have. So He said, see the urgency of the times, see the urgency of yourself, uh, see yourself, see how you respond, and then lastly, see the overall urgency of the matter. This is an illustration in verses 6 to 9 of a man who had a fig tree planted. It was not growing. It was not bearing fruit. Three years now, nothing. And he tells his vine dresser, his landscaper, hey, all right, this, this plant, we, it, it's been a headache enough. It's not growing. I can replace it with something that will grow. Just cut it down. But the vine dresser says, hey, let's give it one more year. You can just see this conversation. He says, all right, you, you want to try a little more, try a little more. If it doesn't shape up, then I'm cutting it down. This is the warning Jesus gives us. You're in that period of what, that, that, that year before it's getting cut down. You know, Jerusalem was sacked. It was burned. It was overthrown in A.D. 70. Somewhat in fulfillment of prophecies like this one, that, that the fig tree, that this, this plant of God would be cut down. And yet the people of God, they had opportunity to respond to them, but they did not. In one sense, events like that, that prophecy and an, fulfills this. And yet in another sense, this parable stands as an illustration to you and to me. Saying, see the urgency of the need to respond to Jesus before it's too late. Stop being casual towards Jesus. Repent. Commit to what he calls you to in his word. To, to, to turning from your sin. To confessing your need for him. To trusting your life with him. To committing to his people and life with his church. You see, here's what you have to see. You, you remember I told you, okay, hang on because there's good news coming. Jesus says, judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. But we don't have to look at Jerusalem sacked and destroyed in A.D. 70 and see, like, okay, judgment came. We can actually look at Jesus himself, and what was he just not long after these events? He was destroyed on the cross. He bore your sins and mine. And so we hear what he has done in bearing our sins on the cross. And you can look at it, and you can believe these things to be true, and you can humble yourself under him, and you can repent, and you can follow him. 
But you don't just follow. You actually find an illustration of what, or you find in a life that is illustrated in one way in verses 10 to 17. So this passage calls us to understand the urgency of the times, but secondly, to understand the freedom that Jesus gives in verses 10 to 17. We now come to an event that, that, that okay, Jesus has been teaching, conversing with his listeners, trying to communicate this idea of urgency. But the scene changes in verse 10. Look at this. Now, he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. So it's, it's, it's a scene change. Change in circumstances. Change in audience. And behold, verse 11, there was a woman who had had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. I don't know if this was some form of arthritis, some, some, some form of of physical illness where she had this, 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 this crippling nature physically for 18 years. And Jesus saw her and he calls her over and he says to her, listen, listen to this, woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her and immediately she was made straight and she glorified God. How, how beautiful. How moving. Just pause here. Sit here for a minute. You, you, can, you can read of miracles in the Gospels. We can read of miracles in the Gospel, and they're so frequent. They so frequently occur that they're written down. But we read over them. We don't see them with our eyes, and they're so frequent that we just gloss over them. We can lose sense of the wonder as we look at them. Just listen. Look at this again. I'm just going to read it again. There was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. I, I, I don't know. Do you think people maybe avoided her? They didn't know how to speak to her. They felt like, ah, you know, like... God's been good to us, but He really gave her a tough lot. It's unfortunate that her life has taken the turns that it has. It has gone the direction that it has. I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. I don't know. Was she impoverished? Probably so. Probably had great need. Probably had few people in life to care for her. In, in, in Jesus' day, they did not have the social safety nets that we enjoy in our day. But he calls her over and says to her, woman, you are freed from your disability. Just picture him looking her in the eyes and saying that. Just picture that. And he laid his hands on her. And what does it say? After she made three easy installments of 1995, she was healed. He gave her a first dose and said, all right, you've got to come back for your next dose in two weeks. No, immediately she was made straight. And what did she do? She glorified God. The arrival of Jesus was not some sort of guru or, or miracle worker who was trying to right some wrongs and make the world a better place. This is why this is here. I, I, I wrestled for, for much of the time in preparation of this text to say, why is this story right after these stories expressing the urgency of responding to Jesus? And I, what, what I came to 
is that, that these, these stories telling us of the urgency of responding to Jesus before too late, they basically tell us this world is hurting. It's in a rough place. And Jesus comes to this woman who is hurting. And he gives to her new life. His miracles serve to illustrate the coming of a kingdom and to prepare his audience for a release from the evils of the world and the suffering that this life only knows. And yet, there always has to be one party pooper. The ruler of the synagogue was unhappy with this work of Jesus. After all, Jesus has had the audacity to heal this woman on a Sabbath. Jewish law, according to the ruler of the synagogue, commanded that the Sabbath be kept holy, a time to rest and reflect on God's good and perfect work and to look ahead to his redeeming work that was to be accomplished. Now, God had ordained and commanded his people to keep the Sabbath holy. Yet, what had happened in, from the original instructions in the giving of the law in the book of Exodus, some thousand plus years before the events of Jesus' life, is uh, uh, Old Testament scholars and lawyers and experts had added these other conditions, these other rules, and they just kind of complicated the matter and complicated the matter and complicated the matter and complicated the matter to the point where the power of God made evident amongst his people was proclaimed as being out of step with God's law and he should be rejected. And so Jesus is not the one out of step with the law of God. These ruler of the synagogue is out of step with the law of God. The Lord answered him in verse 15, the, uh, you hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? You do this, and yet this woman, a daughter of Abraham, Satan has had her bound for 18 years, you say she shouldn't be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? Verse 17, as he said these things, all of his adversaries were put to shame. And all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. So we have plenty of laws. I'm not talking about the kind of laws like, all right, make sure you drive 35 miles an hour in a 35 zone. Don't want to roll through a stop sign. Yeah, those are important. But I'm talking about what we have before us is the righteous law of God fulfilled in Jesus and the laws of our world that would cripple us. Jesus speaks in the conditions of our world. Let's say that, the conditions of our world that would cripple us. In unrelenting sorrow, in unrelenting agony, in unrelenting despair, Jesus speaks in and gives freedom. The call to come to Jesus, the urgent matter of coming to Jesus, is not intellectual alone. It's literally life-changing, life-altering, new heart-birthing, new perspective-giving, new joy-founding. This world marches forward in an unrelenting grind of expectation, burdens, standards placed on you, whether by yourself or by others. How often does your mind tell you, here's the things you must do to please those around you, or here's what you must do to be loved or to be loveable? Your body aches, cries out for rescue and redemption. 
See, our bodies, our worlds, our souls, they are doing what the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 8. They are groaning for this new creation. And Jesus has come and says, I am him. He draws near to you. He lifts your drooping eyes. He lays his hand upon your shoulder. He sets your eyes upon him that you may see him and know that in him you may rest. You know what is absolutely spectacular about this passage? There's the urgency in the first few stories or parables where Jesus is saying, urgently respond, urgently respond. And then you have this woman who it's no accident that it's recorded how long? For 18 years she was disabled. And then what happens? In an instant she's healed. How's this so? Because she heard the voice of Jesus and was healed. Jesus had satisfied all that could be asked of her and all that could be asked of him, both in life and death. His adversaries were put to shame, but those who loved him rejoiced at the glorious things that were done by him. The answer for the evils of our world, for the chaos that we see in, in, in and around us, is to not put ourselves or put our heads in the ground and say, okay, I need to just find my little slice of paradise, my little slice of peace. No, it's to draw near to Christ. And, and as we see all the evil in the world, the world burning, to know that his world tells me that his word tells me that I belong to him. He is my hope. He helps me to know that everything else will find its end. But for the Christian, we have hope that his kingdom knows no end. And this is what he shows us in verses 18 to 21. And so, having, having exhorted his audience to, say, to see the urgency of the matter, see the world is running hot, to see that, 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 that it will ultimately burn up. What does he say in verse 18? Look at this. He says, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden and it grew and became a tree and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. Now you might hear that and say like, huh? I, I was expecting like beautiful weather and perfect days and like, like Jesus, what, what? This is what you give me? Or this is what you're telling us? No, 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 no. It's, it's a parable. It's an illustration. Excuse me. He says the kingdom of God is like this small seed that's planted and casually, slowly, but undeniably it grows. Verse 20, what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It's like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leaven. Like there's a lot going on there. Like leaven is the, the stuff like, like yeast that goes in and makes it grow. Okay. And, and um, uh, three measures of flour, that's the equivalent of 128 cups of flour. I'm not a baker, but if you go put 128 cups of flour in like some bread you're going to bake or something, you're going to have a problem. It's going to grow. Maybe overtake your house. What Jesus is doing here is he's saying to us, in the urgency of all that you see happening in the world, you need your understanding of reality reoriented where you see that the most important thing, the most pressing thing that is going on in this world, the most beautiful thing that is going on in the world is the growing of the kingdom of God. It's a fundamental reorienting of how you understand your world and your future. 
We no longer have to look at all that's going on in the news and say, yeah, that's not good, that's not good, that's not good, and I'm just going to try to make it through the best I can. No, Jesus offers the grace of seeing him, being transformed by him so that our hope rests in him, and to see and know his kingdom that is being transformed, his kingdom that is growing. It's a call to us to commit ourselves to his church. When I look at, 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 at this passage, I'm encouraged by the fact that though we are rather small and, and, and fairly insignificant in the eyes of the world, we are growing into something that is special that will ultimately only be revealed in eternity. And so this is an invitation to go from doom and despair to glorious delight in the Savior and in His church. And so the opportunity before us is we no longer have to look at our phones and just doom scroll between all the bad news, but in the fellowship with His church and the growing of His kingdom and the advance of His gospel to the ends of the earth, we can actually replace all the bad news with the good news of seeing people who are being born again, of seeing people who are growing by the grace of God, of seeing people whose hearts have been transformed by the gospel of God, and they have been made new. And so Jesus is coming to us to fundamentally alter how we understand reality. And just like with the opening illustration I gave you, where you are never going to view Monopoly in the same way again, you have the opportunity that as you see the chaos and the despair of our world, you have the opportunity to look at and to see Jesus and His power and to see the urgency of this message that we proclaim, but to see the promise that though this world is burning, the kingdom is growing, and that His people are being kept and guarded by Him, and that we who have been born again in this life, we will be made whole and complete when we are glorified in His presence. Look at the chaos of this world and do what? Urgently, urgently, urgently run to Jesus.